Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight it is my intention to look at Psalm 67 and 68. Psalm 67 is only seven verses long, and it's not a particularly complicated psalm, and it is well-placed behind the two psalms that we looked at last week. Last week we concentrated on why do people worship God? Why does he deserve praise and honor and glory? And we saw that David listed everything from it's God who gives us rain and food all the way down to the things that we call nature, day and night, sun and moon. All those things are in his hand. Therefore, he deserves to be worshipped regardless of the circumstances of this life. And so Psalm 67 is then an exhortation to all the nations of the earth for everybody to worship and to praise God. And then Psalm 68 is a psalm of procession. There is a lot of language of Zion, a lot of language of Jerusalem and of the procession of God. We don't know what particular procession David is referring to here. He might be talking about the procession that occurred when they brought the ark to Jerusalem. We are also going to see references to the temple here because David was sure that the temple of God was going to be built at Jerusalem and started collecting the uh, necessary materials for Solomon, his son, to build the temple. And so David speaks of the temple. He might be talking about the tabernacle that was housing, the tent that was housing the ark of God, but he is certainly looking forward to that day when the temple of God was going to be constructed. So Psalm 68 is... A psalm, again, about singing to God, singing praises to his name, lifting up a song to him who rides through the deserts. He's going to recount how God has brought Israel into the promised land, how he protected them and took them through the sea and took them through the desert. And so even that, David sees as a procession, movement out of Egypt proceeding into the promised land. So it is a psalm of procession. In order to start Psalm 67, I want to remind you of the blessing of God that we find in number six, because clearly David has this in mind. And in fact, we have a plaque by the door on the way out there that has this very blessing on it. Numbers chapter six, after God has laid out all the law and the laws of the Nazarites, He then gives Aaron particular words to use in order to bless Israel. Starting in verse 22, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons. So this is for the priesthood. This is for the Levites. This is for the succession of high priests. So this is the high priestly blessing on the nation of Israel. 
speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. So the high priest, in standing between the people and God, speaks on God's behalf with this blessing that everything that you receive is a blessing from God. The fact that you are alive is the fact that God is keeping you. The fact that you know anything, that you have any enlightenment, any intelligence, any wisdom, is because God himself is making his revelation, his face, shine on you. And God is gracious to us, which is why we have sustenance and food and life and knowledge. And that God himself would lift up his own being, his own countenance, would reveal himself to us, and by doing so would give us peace so that there is the ceasing of againstness between us and God. So that's a really good benediction, a really good blessing. And as I said, David clearly has that in mind. We're going to see it here in Psalm 67. Psalm 67, for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. And Everything about this psalm is an admonition to praise God. He's given us two psalms full of why God needs to be praised. Now, knowing why God deserves to be praised, do it. Now, praise God. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. All of that language is directly from the blessing of Aaron, that peace and grace are going to come to us from God, that blessings are going to come to us from God, and that God is going to make his face shine upon us. And after that single sentence, David adds, Selah, think about that. That thy way, that God's way, may be known on the earth and thy salvation among all peoples, all nations. If that sounds familiar, it's very much like Jesus' own prayer when his apostle said, teach us to pray. And he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That goes all the way back to David here saying, so that your way, so that your will, your intention may be known throughout the earth and your salvation will be known among all people groups, all nations. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. What we saw last week was all nature praises God. The mountains and the wind and the trees, everything praises God. Now the admonition to human beings is God's going to be praised. He's going to get his appropriate worship. Now come join in. Be part of that. Worship and praise that God. 
Let the peoples praise thee, O God. I also find it interesting that David would request of God that God would cause the peoples to praise him because David's concept of the sovereignty of God never leaves him. That even the worship of God, the salvation of God, the sustenance of God all starts with God. Not because it's something we deserve, but because God deserves to be praised. Therefore, he can extract praise out of worms like us. And so David even says, let your people, let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou wilt judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah, think of that. Again, David sees in the sovereignty of God that God's hand is guiding all the nations of the earth. Whatever is happening in human history, David says, that's God. And we do need to remember that, especially in the times we live in, although I am confident, just as Steve prayed a moment ago, I am confident that all the generations before us thought that their particular world, their particular generation was really, really crazy. Mm. I mean, I didn't live through the Spanish Inquisition, but I'm sure the people that were under the the boot of the Roman church felt like, well, it just isn't going to get worse than this. I'm sure the Jews living during the time of Hitler, I'm sure the Europeans living during the time of Pol Pot thought, well, it's not going to get worse than this. And so here in our present evil age, there is all of this craziness going on. And what we have to recall, what we have to always keep before us, is the knowledge that God is in charge of the nations, that he's the one who is ruling and guiding, and his hand is on the nations, and that nobody can do anything that God does not allow them to do, because God, according to the Bible, also restrains the excesses of the wickedness of people. So if there is wickedness in the world, and we think, wow, this is crazy wickedness, Just think what it would be if God ever said, okay, go nuts. Instead, God in his holiness restrains the wickedness of people because he himself guides the nations on the earth. So let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples in uprightness and you will guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. The earth has yielded its produce. There's that same theme again. God, you're the one who gives us rain. You're the one that causes seed to grow in the earth. You're the one that provides the dirt. Therefore, there is grain. There is food. The earth has yielded its produce. So God, Elohim, our God, our Elohim, blesses us. This is why I taught my children that every time they sat down in front of some food, they needed to bow their head and fold their hands and just say thank you to God. Just recognize always before you eat that it is God who has provided the food. It wasn't Wonder Bread and it wasn't Hostess and it wasn't Publix. Ultimately, it is God. If he did not provide the very dirt 
that grain grows in, there'd be no food. He's the one that provides the rain. He's the one that provides the produce that we eat. The earth yields its produce, and that is proof positive that Elohim, our Elohim, blesses us. Elohim blesses us, he says again, so that all the ends of the earth may worship him, may fear him, may reverence him, may recognize who he is. And I think that form of reference, that form of fear, is an appropriate fear. We're not talking slavish fear. We're not talking being afraid of God or his judgment. But recognizing that without him, you really genuinely have nothing. If he does not raise up his countenance on you, if he does not make his face shine on you, then you're not going to have any knowledge. You're not going to have any wisdom. You're not going to have any food. You're not going to have any life. You're not going to have any hope. You're certainly not going to have eternal life. Therefore, under all circumstances, all people everywhere all the time ought to be praising and worshiping God because God does bless us in so many ways that we don't even recognize, we don't even think about. And yet he blesses us continually all the time so that everybody on the planet may recognize and fear and reverence and worship and praise him. And that is Psalm 67, which, as I said, is a nice addendum to everything that we saw last week. Psalm 68, then, is this psalm of procession, and it is a good deal longer. Some of the language is very poetic. We will try to sort our way through it. He starts out by saying, let Elohim, let God arise. Let him lift himself up. And when he demonstrates himself, let his enemies be scattered. Let all those who hate him flee before him. Like smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts in front of a fire, so let the wicked perish before God. So right away, he's using these poetic analogies. The same way that smoke, when it fills a room and then the air blows in, the smoke dissipates. He says, that's what it's going to be like when God lifts himself up. When he fights for us, his enemies are going to run away. They're going to disappear. They're going to melt in front of him the way that wax melts in front of a fire. But, verse 3, but let the righteous be glad. Let the righteous exalt before God to lift him up, to praise him, to say good things about him, to brag about him, to boast in him. Let them exalt before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. And so the contrast is the enemies of God are going to be destroyed. They're going to be scattered. They're going to dissipate like smoke. They're going to melt away like wax. But on the other hand, the righteous, the followers of God, are going to have happiness and gladness and they're going to boast in the Lord and they're going to rejoice in God in their gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is Yahweh. And exult again. Boast before him. 
In other words, the picture is God in his chariot of clouds riding across the desert lands where there is nobody. He is still king over those territories. He's the great conqueror. And as he rides through the deserts, announcing his name, I am Yahweh. In a moment, David's going to refer to him as the Almighty, as Shaddai. When he makes himself known, then it's almost like men need to run ahead of him, announcing his presence and exalting in him and boasting in him and saying, this is our God. Verse 5, he is a father to the fatherless. And he is a judge for the widows. That is who God is in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners, brings them into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So again, the contrast is God cares for and provides for those who trust him. He's a father to the fatherless. He's the one who stands as an advocate for the widows, for those who have nothing. He's the one that delivers the prisoners and brings them into prosperity in their lives. But those who rebel against him are going to dwell in parched land where there is no rain, where there is no dirt, where there is nothing to eat, where the sun beats down on them, where there is misery. The rebellious dwell on a parched land. O Elohim, when thou didst go forth before your people, when thou didst march through the wilderness. Think about that. Okay, so this is David kind of beginning this allusion to how God delivered his people out of Egypt and marched them through the wilderness. For the wicked... They're going to end up in a parched land, and it's going to be miserable for them. For God's own people, they can march through that same wilderness, and because they have God with them, God will provide for them and bring them to this land of milk and honey. And as I said, this is a psalm of procession. And so David is likening that trip from Egypt into the promised land as a procession of God's people where God is leading them. That becomes more clear in verse 8. The earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. So even in a wilderness, God can provide rain. God can provide food and grain. And Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So the Sinai desert, the wilderness even though it was a wilderness, even though it wasn't able to provide for those people. When God was with them, God was able to say, go strike a rock. And enough water flowed out of it to feed all the people and all the cattle. So if God is with you, even in a wilderness or in a parched land, God is able to provide. God is able to bless you, to deliver you the same way he did Israel. Verse 9 Thou didst shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. Thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was parched. Thy creatures settled in it, and thou didst provide in thy goodness for the poor, O God. 
The Lord gives the command, in other words, the reason there was rain, the reason that the parched ground was able to provide for 40 years of travel through it. The reason was because God himself gave the command and nature responded. And as a consequence, the women of Israel begin singing the praises of God. This is all part of that lifting up God, exalting in God. The Lord, says verse 11, gives the command, and the women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. means it's a great blessing. And there's a lot of women in the camp singing praises to God because of his provision for them, even in the wilderness. And God made sure that their enemies did not get to them. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. In other words, Israel always had such victory over the foreign kings that when they brought home the spoil, it was bountiful enough that the women who were at home praising God also got part of the spoils of that war. So God, again, provides. God blesses his people. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions are glistening gold. The idea there is even when you're resting, when you're in sheepfolds, when you're sleeping, when you're at your most vulnerable, God is protecting you from wild animals. God is protecting you from foreign armies. God is taking care of you, and he has put his wings over you like the wings of a dove, a dove that is covered with silver, and its pinions are glistening gold. Verse 14, when the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. This is a tough one, and you can read lots of different Commentators, but I think what David is saying here in a very poetic fashion, I think David is saying it doesn't snow in Zalman, that's desert area. But when the Almighty, when Shaddai, the God of all power, scattered the kings in the wilderness, it was like snow in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. You're going to see a couple of references here to the mountains of Bashan. If you look at Bashan on a map, it is right by Mount Hermon and the mountains of Hermon. And what David's going to get at here is that even the mountain ranges that were majestic nevertheless had to look at Mount Zion in jealousy because Mount Zion was the place where God chose to place his name even though there were other majestic mountains, other majestic mountain ranges, other places where God could have set himself up. He did it at Mount Zion. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan, a mountain of many peaks. That's why I said it is the range of Hermon. Our mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. So why do you look with envy Oh, mountains with many peaks. And so he's personalizing, characterizing the mountains as being envious of Mount Zion. 
Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? At the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. God has placed his name in Mount Zion, right there in Jerusalem. And all the other mountains in the region, indeed all the other mountains in the world, and, all, and indeed all the other kingdoms of the world have to look with envy at Mount Zion because that's the place where Yahweh resides. That's where his worship resides. That's where he placed his name eternally. Surely the Lord, Yahweh, will dwell there forever. Now, a minute ago, I made reference to God riding in his chariot of clouds, which Ezekiel describes, Isaiah describes. God rides on clouds, chariots of clouds, wheels within wheels. Here David refers to it. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. God has his own army. God rides on chariots. And the Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. So not only does God reside at Mount Sinai, but his armies, his chariots, his angels, all those who do his bidding all resonate from Sinai in his holiness. And you, God, thou hast ascended on high. This is very interesting language. And you have led captive thy captives and thou hast received gifts among men. If that sounds familiar, that's actually something that Paul picks up in the book of Ephesians. In fact, turn to Ephesians 4 for just a moment, and let's see how Paul picks that up. In Ephesians 4, we're going to have a look at verse 8 in particular, but you'll notice that Paul does something interesting. In the Psalms, David says that it is God who is going to receive gifts among men because he, being the conqueror, fighting on behalf of Israel, is going to then lead captive the captives that God takes. And he's going to receive gifts from these foreign nations, from his enemies. We certainly see that language in Ezekiel and with the new temple. We see it in Revelation that all nations, the Gentile nations, ultimately are going to worship God, bring their wealth, bring their gifts to Jerusalem, to Mount Sinai. So there may be a prophetic element to this. But what we know for sure is that David writes that he is ascended on high He's as high as you get. He's the captain over everything. And he led captive his captives. And as a consequence, he receives gifts among men. Now, when you go with Hebrew prepositions, and then you translate them into Greek, like the Septuagint, and then you have Paul reading from the Septuagint, he ends up saying that Jesus himself took captive, his own captives, but rather than receiving gifts, he's the one that gave gifts to men. Here's what it says. Oh, it's a hard place to start. I'm going to start at verse 1. Genesis 1.1. Here we go. That's such an old joke, and I'm so happy you laughed at it. That, that brings me great joy. You've made an old man happy. 
So thank you. You've done your good deed for the day. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some, here's the gifts that he gave men, and he gave some as apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So it's in that context of talking about Christ descending into the lower parts of the earth, ascending up on high, sending the Holy Spirit to us, sending gifts to his church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. It's within that context that Paul quotes from Psalm 68 and says, as it's written, that he ascended on high. So Paul sees that as a prophetic explanation of what Christ was going to do, that Christ was going to ascend on high, that he was going to lead captive his captives, and that he was also going to receive gifts from men. Paul says he gives gifts to men. And you can read many commentaries about that change of preposition, but it's clear that Paul said that the reason the church receives the gifts that it does, the Holy Spirit, the teachers, the body, the one faith, the one baptism, those gifts are all the result of the fact that Christ ascended as high as you get. And because he's on high, he saw David as speaking prophetically that he would ascend on high and lead captive his own captives. Verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. The God who is our salvation. Selah. Knowing that Paul saw verse 18 as prophetic of Christ, I think it's fair then to say that verse 19 has obvious Christological implications to it because blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. He was tempted in all ways such as we are and yet without sin. He bore our sin burden. He paid our sin debt. He truly bore our burden. And yet he is the very God of our salvation. 
So I think this language that David used in speaking of Yahweh in the ways that God had protected Israel in their procession to the promised land, Paul picks it up, sees the allusions to Christ, and then expands on that to say it is Christ who ascended on high. It's Christ who led captive. It's Christ who gave gifts to men. It is Christ himself who is blessed of the Lord, who bears our burdens. It is Christ who is the God of our salvation. I think that's a fair reading of it. Anybody object? Okay, just wanted to give you your chance. Elohim is to us a God of deliverances. And to Elohim, the Lord belong escapes from death. In other words, it is God who delivers us through all our circumstances. And every time that we escape the snare of death, it is God, the Lord, the Almighty, who provides us with those escapes. Again, it sounds like Paul, I can't keep doing this, but I see so many New Testament allusions in here, and Paul kind of gave us a little bit of license to read this with Christological implications. But there is no temptation taken us, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you'll be able to bear it. That's very much like the language here, that it is God who is the God of delivering us. And it is God the Lord who provides the escapes for death and for all the troubles of this life. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies. And I like this language. This is kind of funny to me. He refers to the head of his enemies as their hairy crown. In my case, not so much. Don't say it. I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. The hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. He doesn't have a crown of righteousness. He doesn't have a crown of salvation. All he's got is his own head. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. And I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. Tom, if you would, real quickly, look up Numbers 21. I'm going to have you read verses 33, 34, and 35, because here again, this idea of procession, bringing the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, bringing them into the promised land, I will bring them back from Bashan. I'll bring them back from the depths of the sea. That is obviously a reference to the Red Sea. Go ahead, read it for us. Numbers 21, 33 to 35. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, And Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edri. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people in his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Shion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So this is a piece of Israelite history that David knows and is giving God credit for the fact that he took Israel through Bashan. The king of Bashan gathered his armies to go fight with Israel. God said to Moses, I'm going to give you the ability to conquer the king of Bashan. Don't be afraid of him. David references that here in this psalm. I will bring them back from Bashan. He's the same God who delivered them through the Red Sea. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. That your foot 
may shatter them, destroy them, that you'll win the war, that your foot may shatter them in blood, and the tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies, because the dogs would lick up the blood after the battles. Verse 24, they have seen thy procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, even Yahweh, you who are of the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them, which, by the way, was a reality even in David's life. Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite. Benjamin was also the smallest of the tribes. And out of the smallest of the tribes, out of the youngest of the 12 sons of Israel, there is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them and the princes of Judah in their throng. Okay, Benjamin and Judah make up the southern kingdom. But then there are also the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Those are the northern kingdom princes. And so here David is announcing a procession in the glorification of God with singing, dancing, and tambourines where the whole congregation of Israel is blessing God from the youngest to Judah who has the scepter and law giving to Zebulun, to Naphtali, to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, all of Israel is blessing God in this procession. Verse 28, your God has commanded your strength. Show thyself strong, O God, who has acted on our behalf. Because of thy temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to thee. Rebuke the beasts that are hiding in the grass, in the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver that he has scattered. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Even further south, Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. By the way, that is something that we see Prophetically, the prophets talk about it, that there's going to be a highway, that the people of Egypt, the people of Ethiopia, are going to come to Jerusalem to worship. David's talking about the same thing, that the ancient enemies of Israel are going to do obeisance to them and bring their gifts to Jerusalem because that's where the temple of God is and that's where the worship of God is. And envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hand to God, to Elohim, sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to Yahweh, Selah. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, there's that chariot of clouds language again, he who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. Yes, I mentioned earlier that he referred to God as the Almighty, as Shaddai. He's continuing that language of the power and the authority, the almighty strength of God. And when he speaks forth with his voice, 
It is a mighty voice. What he says actually happens. So ascribe strength to Elohim. His majesty is over Israel, and his strength is in the skies. O God, thou art awesome from thy sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. And then he ends right where he begins. Blessed be God. So here in the last two weeks, I think what we've seen is David saying, God is in charge of everything. He's in charge of the details. He's in charge of the fact that you eat. He's in charge of day and night. He's in charge of the good stuff. He's in charge of the bad stuff. He's in charge of everything. Therefore, he deserves to be worshipped and praised. Ultimately, all the kingdoms of the earth are also going to worship and praise him. Even the ancient enemies, God has already demonstrated with his procession where he took the children of Israel out of Egypt and brought them into Canaan, walking by kings like Bashan, conquering them, so that the mountains of Bashan would have to look on in envy at Mount Sinai. In all of that, God is demonstrating his authority and his power. Therefore, if he has power over Egypt to the degree that he can pull his people out of Egypt and that nothing Egypt can do can stop the procession of God's people, then God can also say confidently, the day is coming when the nations of the earth are going to hold a procession and they're going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to come to Sinai and they're all going to worship God, including Egypt and Ethiopia, who God has already demonstrated his authority over. Therefore, he rides in the highest heaven and he's been there from ancient times. So knowing that he is the ancient all-powerful God with the all-powerful voice who is in charge of the uprising and downfalling of nations, who's in charge of whether or not you eat, who has to make his face shine on you for you to even have any kind of knowledge, knowing that that is how expansive God is, uh, praise him. You get the picture? David is trying to approach this topic of praise to God from all these different angles. Worship God because of this. Worship God because of that. Worship God because of who he is. Worship God because he fights against your enemies. Worship God because he's in control of the animal. Worship God because he protects you while you're asleep and while you're vulnerable. Worship God because he's the one that feeds you. Worship God because he's in charge of all nature and nature all worships him. And he rides on his chariot of clouds. He's in charge of heaven from ancient times. He has always been the king on his throne. He's always going to do what he wants. He does what he wants among the inhabitants of the earth and the armies of heaven. And given all of that, from the finest little details all the way to the grandest concepts that our minds can conceive of, for all those reasons, praise God. You get it? Well, then I'm done. I can't add anything to that. <laughs> Questions? Praise God. Praise God. There you go. What more can you say? Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org 
for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.